Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Jim Wellman, also known as James K. Wellman in the academic world. He has become a friend of mine. I almost studied with him. I came very close to doing a master's in comparative religion with him at the University of Washington here in Seattle. I didn't do that, but we have stayed in touch and hung out many times since then. And so I have been planning on having him on the podcast to talk about uh, this research of his for quite a while. Finally got around to it. So I'm excited to share this. I thought that it might be good timing to talk about some of the surprising advantages of megachurches, or at the very least, what they offer that makes people go to them, uh, especially as people are going back. Um, I don't know how many of us will be seeing our families, but I imagine that despite COVID, many of us still will. Um, and a lot of our family members are the type of people who attend these mega churches. Uh, and some, some listeners do as well, although I would imagine that there's a greater uh, preponderance among family members, parents, aunts, and uncles than there are among actual listeners, although I would be curious to find that out. Maybe I should add that to my next survey that I take of the patrons. Anyway, Jim is uh, in a weird position uh, defending megachurches or calling out their virtues. Uh, megachurches are the most common whipping boy of religious scholarship. And some of that is uh, for good reason. 
because of some of the twisting of the gospel you can find at some of these places. And some of it is for bad reason. It is cultural snobbery, um, just under the guise of academic research. So we talk about that as well as the research itself and some of the consequences of more liberal versus more megachurch, more conservative, uh, more middle class expressions of Christianity and raising children and all that kind of thing. Jim has a lot of opinions on that stuff. I always find them interesting. I usually find them persuasive. Uh, and so I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Just, you know, have an open mind here. Uh, do not <laughs> as much as possible. Don't come into this. Um, already deciding that megachurches have nothing to offer. That's what I would suggest you do. Now, if you have been personally really burned at a megachurch, you know, I don't I don't uh, expect you to immediately get over all of that. And, you know, that's that's human nature. That is part of human psychology. And so, of course, don't feel bad about that. But I will be curious uh, what what do you guys think of this episode and this conversation? I, I've been looking forward to not just uh, not just having you hear it, but also <laughs> the little social experiment aspect of it to see what listeners think about this kind of evidence and argumentation. So, all right, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Jim. Thank you so much for joining me today, man. Appreciate it. Great to be here with you. A little, a little background that probably doesn't matter, but I think just kind of gives some some color to our friendship is I almost studied with you and did a master's in comparative religion before kind of holding off on that and then eventually realizing that I, I should do this psychology degree. So unfortunately, we could have been hanging out like two, three times a week for the last two years. Instead, we talk about twice a year. I'll take it, but just saying. Well... We miss you. So I want to start with the story that you start with in the mm. introduction to your book. You are a, you know, liberal, non-expressive, not particularly expressive scholar of religion in this mega church, watching this altar call go on. And you are there to be a dispassionate observer. You're doing peer-reviewed research. But what happens to you? Yeah. What's amazing about this is it's my third time going through this service. So this church, which I can't identify, met five times that Sunday. Incredible. And it was the exact same service each time. And it's a mega church. So it was, it was very well attended. And the third time through, I knew exactly what was coming. I you knew, knew all the beats, that. right. And I know, and uh, the preacher was pretty straightforward, smart, well-spoken. I knew exactly what he was doing. And then when he gave the altar call, I found myself involuntarily feeling my whole body saying, I am going down and I want to touch his hand. And it was completely, it was a, sort of out of, not, it wasn't out of body, it was an in-body experience of the feeling of a spirit, you know, spirit, whatever you want to call it, Holy Spirit, saying, you will go down. Now, it came up to my neck, so my head was free to say, what is this? And 
obviously I resisted, but it was resistance to the call. And um, to be clear, you resisted just because it would compromise the research or you resisted because you don't actually want that altar call or what do you mean? Yeah, I thought it was at the time, you know, when I look back on it at the time, I thought it's unprofessional of me to do this, especially since I'm on research. And it's not as if as a person of faith, I I am a Christian. I know what this is. I know. And I've had experiences of spirituality, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, that are quite very real and very powerful. So it's not like I don't know what's going on. It's just this time I thought, nope, I won't do it. And so when I kind of resisted it, it finally, whatever that spirit is, sort of sloughed off. But it was powerful in the sense that, wow, these ways of being, these strategies of calling people out really do work. Also, what struck me about the services that I was in, in this particular church, they had announced that they, the day before, they had sent 600 volunteers out to a local city park to completely redo it. They had just announced that they were, you know, giving out vouchers for food and clothing to every policeman and fireman in the city. And so there was this kind of overwhelming sense of, wow, this is what the church is about. So it was kind of that feeling of like, wow, you're, you're not only, you know, preaching the gospel, but you're actually living it out in a way that I, I really respected and I respect now. So I think that was, a, that was all a part of this. The, the sermon was not that, uh, how would I put it? I, I wasn't really taken with the sermon in any intellectual way. He was a good preacher, not stunning. But I think the fact that they were living out the gospel on such a profound level at the, at the level of need for that city was really, was kind of, it was really extraordinary. And that kind of goes back to, I wrote this book at first, in the first several years of, of doing the research, I thought, okay, let's go after megachurches as sort of superficial, consumer-ish spirituality that really is not, has no depth or meaning and is just manipulation and talk about that in the book. And in a sense, this conversion experience, not literally, but was a part of my conversion to saying, hmm, you know, really what the data shows is these churches do enormous amounts of good quietly. Most people don't know what's going on. And I said, you know, to my co-authors, I said, hey, let's identify and be very particular about identifying all the good things they do and really show that. And it's interesting because I think the response to the book has been, you know, kind of tepid in the in part because Churches are seen in very negative light today. By well, especially, especially by my, since 2016, right? Especially by my scholarly colleagues. And so it's kind of been, oh, this can't be, either can't be true, isn't true. He's bullshitting us. He missed something. 
I'm not sure what it is. People just don't want to believe that these churches do enormous amounts of good. And that's what I think the book shows. And I'm going to stand on it. And also, you know, it's funny, too, is evangelicalism has become more important to me in a certain way, almost spiritually. I've seen its goodness. I married an evangelical. And for intellectual reasons, I came to realize this is not all bad. Now, we have differences. You know, I, I am for LGBTQT rights and marriage and choice, although I understand the ambivalence of evangelicals towards, you know, that all these issues. So, you know, we have our differences, but to throw the baby out with the bathwater seems, it seems unscientific and unsociological, but, you know, I got a bad review just about this, this issue and I'll take it. And I think they should read the book and do the empirical analysis and see, wow, people's lives are being renovated, rejuvenated, flourishing. New families are being created. Small groups are nourishing people in human goodness. Service is going out to people who need it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I hope this isn't too, you know, getting too early into some of the larger questions, but isn't one way of uh, making sense of both your data that you uncovered, this tremendous positive side to megachurch involvement, and making sense of the tremendous downside of, for instance, so many national leaders so publicly and embarrassingly uh, accepting Trump and bending over backwards for someone who doesn't give a shit about them. Isn't one way of putting both of those together just that like religion is super powerful. So when it is doing something healthy, we should expect it to be very effective at bringing health. And when it is doing something unhealthy, we should expect it to be very effective at bringing chaos and destruction because it's so central to the human individual and group process. That would be, in my, in my understanding, one way of pretty straightforwardly resolving <laughs> your book with other findings. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And, and you know, on the liberal side, you know, whatever – kind of a liberal take on megachurches is that they're anti-gay, they're anti, you know, against people who are vulnerable. They're not for choice. They, et cetera, et cetera. They exploit people. They're manipulative, some of which is true. But on a broader scale, like kind of what you're saying is that they're very powerful and my research shows that many people feel flourish in these confines. Now, do we need to be, you know, careful and discerning and understanding of this movement? I, yes, of course. I think the fact that, you know, this is a long story and I don't really want to get into it, but before 1975, evangelical churches were allowed for 
were open to abortion as a means of, of family planning. And, and something happened in the 1970s, which is a long story, to say, you know, that no abortion at any stage of the pregnancy should be allowed, is allowed. And this is the murder of, of, of a human being if it, if it goes through. Now, that's a long story. It should be understood by evangelicals. My point of view on that is that evangelicals were kind of hoodwinked into the politics of life. And the Republican Party knew that they could use this one lever right, and totally. get 80%, 85% of all evangelicals. On and it's side. still working in 2020. And it is working. And I just, you know, it seems like when you bring this up, nobody, everybody goes, oh yeah, you're right. Who cares? It works. Liberals hate it. Evangelicals just go, it's true. And I don't know what to say about it other than, wow, it's distorted politics. Yeah. It's allowed the Republican Party to nominate hideous people, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr., Donald Trump. These are these are really, you know, terrible human beings. And yet on this one issue, we all agree they you know, evangelicals agree, they follow the leader, they say, okay, we'll vote, we'll we won't pay attention to the rest of his life, but on this one issue, we will agree and we'll follow. So, yeah, you know. so that's kind of where some of the antipathy is coming from, from other scholars and just from more liberal Christians is like, you know, in one sense, you might think that what some people are feeling as they respond to your research is, I don't care, man. Like, I don't care if the personal lives of these people who are ruining life for my friends and community and I'm speaking in another person's voice here. I'm being a little stronger than I would certainly be. But like the people who are raping the planet and killing the marginalized, whoop do you can do if they're flourishing in their own little enclaves? I don't think that they deserve to be flourishing. Now, I think that that is uh, – there's a, quite a bit of groupthink in that response as well that I would uh, – listeners know where I would want to sort of poke holes in that. But something like that is probably where a lot of people are coming from, whether or not they would recognize it, is that they're actually not interested in the flourishing of their enemies. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Christian, that's a problem because that goes directly against the Sermon on the Mount. But plenty of scholars are not themselves Christians and don't feel whatever. They don't feel uh, that they have to live up to that. But tell me a little bit about the actual research. Just give me a little nuts and bolts. What, what did you do? You went to some churches, you did some interviews. Like what is the actual research you did? Yeah, well, a part of this, too, is that much of this research was done by other two scholars, and it was an enormous research project where they interviewed folks on the ground. They did quantitative research with folks in these churches and really developed a data set that they gave to us and then allowed us to do the kind of the work oh, cool. of trying to find out what's really going on in these churches. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the story of the book is to say, wow, let's really take this research seriously. Let's understand exactly how these churches work, why they work, what are they doing when they're working, et cetera, et cetera. It's both quantitative and qualitative research. So there's no doubt in my mind, we really got to the core 
of what was going on and what goes on in these churches and how they work. This may be another topic, but we really struggled with what was the core issue? You know, what's the, what was the core theme of the book? And we said, I, I came upon, I was up at Friday Harbor and I was trying to think like, what is the core of this book? And uh, I just so happened, I came across a uh, Durkheim essay about that humans were homo duplex. Yeah. And that is human beings both need to be fulfilled within themselves, but at the very same time, they also need to be fulfilled in the other, whether the other is another person, a group, or a God. And, And Durkheim wrote this beautiful essay. It was just a 15-page essay on homo duplex that really became the, the, the nut or the, the kind of the, the core of the thesis. And that is, you know, basically megachurches really understand how to appeal to people on an individual basis, but also to relate them to the group, the family, to their small groups, to the larger church, to the church of God, you know, writ large. And so, you know, it just became obvious that in a certain sense, these megachurches had discovered <laughs> a key to understanding how to meet the needs of human beings at a very core basis. Not that they read Durkheim, but no. they certainly were illustrating Durkheim's point of view on in many ways well so yeah when you bring up Durkheim and homo duplex in the book I mean I can't help but think of Jonathan Haidt uh, social psychologist because he also uses Durkheim's homo duplex idea yes. um, about his distinction between uh, humans are 90% ape and 10% bee so he says we are primarily you know we're primates we have a, a small social circle that is really important to us our family We have individual stuff that we're going through, but 10% of the time, you know, roughly we go to concerts or we, we experience this collective effervescence, which is that also Durkheim? Somebody, somebody's Mm -hmm. term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we're at a concert and we are a part of a hive. We are a part of thousands of people beating as one. That's just to connect it for people because a lot of listeners have read Haidt and are familiar with him because I talk about him ad nauseum, but the idea that religious group activities have the possibility of activating both of those. And my friend, Trip Fuller, the podcast host of Homebrewed Christianity, he's always kind of making fun of his liberal co-religionists for like giving up on rhythmic swaying and singing and all this stuff, which has been with us since, if Robert Bell is right, before language. And so what a lot of liberal churches will do is they will only serve that 90% primate and they'll ignore the 10% B because they are suspicious. They're suspicious of large movements like Germany in the thirties or any kind of big thing that could go out of control. And, or, or I don't know, there's probably all kinds of reasons. You probably have a lot more ideas than I do about why they, why mainline and liberal churches avoid this kind of collective effervescence. But one way of looking at this is functional. It is actually very effective to create this collective effervescence and it is cathartic. It is 
it is a way that our brains evolved to have some of those experiences to sort of let go. It's kind of like a healthy version of the purge. We just we get out of our ego for a second. I think this is why a lot of people drink and do drugs is to get out of their ego for a second. And now we're going to do it and everyone's in agreement and it is positively directed towards God. Now, of course, sometimes it's not positively directed towards God. And that's where the tremendous destructive power can come in. Right. But the idea of just like, well, let's just leave that off the table entirely is probably a strategic error for liberal Christians when when they do that to say, well, we're just not even going to deal with this 10 percent that wants to be a part of a big group thing. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book on evangelicals versus liberal. And again, what, what struck me in that book, and that was about churches in, in the Pacific Northwest region. And what struck me again and again was liberals had no idea how to do collective effervescence. And at one point now, you know, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. And in a certain way, that was the high, that was the high time for liberal prophetic preaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Coffin and other great preachers of, of the day were preaching against the Vietnam War, were preaching against race. And they had they were collectively effervescent. I was just thinking civil rights movement is an example of that collective effervescence on the left. Right. So yeah, it, or the I, BLM protests. Right. Like those are an example of that. But the churches won't do it. You know, well, Martin Luther King Jr., who was one of the great charismatic preachers of all time, knew exactly how, what he was doing. Malcolm X was totally in, in a different way, also could pull it off. Well, so, quick it's sidebar. Like, it's yeah. possible that black churches have retained their numbers better than so many uh, mainline white churches over the decades because the black church experience does include this kind of collective effervescence. You do get swept up in the music and in the shared exclamations from the audience, you know, like they, they, they do it a lot better than the kind of frozen chosen white, you know, mainline groups for cultural reasons, maybe. Right. And the, my liberal friends, at least, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, and I think this is brought more broadly true is that they also one one of the interesting things is they did they don't often want to share this with their children. They don't want to convert their children because they think their children should grow up and be 21 before they can make a you know a cognitive choice about religion. Right. Right. Which which seems to me being it's kind of a form of craziness and so they lose most you know when we did the work on liberal Protestants is basically they ended up saying to their kids, well, if you can't shut up at church, don't come and don't bother me. Literally. We, many parents would say, my kids bother me when I go to church. So there was no passing on of the faith. And so many of the, most of their kids, you know, didn't carry the faith onwards. And I always thought, you know, as a as a somewhat a, as as a believer in the faith, you know, as a liberal Protestant, I actually believe that the faith is a good thing and that it leads people into goodness and truth and service to others and that the gospel is true and good and beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. Dietrich Bonhoeffer kind of Christian. 
And so what I found is that my liberal brothers and sisters basically were giving up on the faith. And I, I still experience, I was just with a good friend the other night and he had, he was giving up on the faith and, and, you know, liberal and wow. So without a community, I think people tend to drift. Yeah. And so it's, it's all, it's, um, I'm not sure what I'm trying to get at, but that kind of disillusionment is really a part of our liberal left culture now. What I would say about that is not that liberals are bad, but they too often become cynical. And, and with that cynicism, they lose hope and, and they, they tend not to mobilize and to get things done as much as evangelicals do. And that, that's another thing that I found in the Evangelical versus Liberal book is that evangelicals, even in terms of social service, do much more empirically, many more good acts of service to their communities than do liberals. And that always bothers liberals when they find that out. That's not true. That's not true, they'll say. Well, actually, I actually found out that's that's actually true. And so I don't know what to say about that other than, yeah, you do the research. You'll find out. So that that was interesting. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that book of yours uh, as well, Jim. And I'll put a link to our episode of Depolarize, my old podcast, because we we talked about it in one or two episodes that you were on in case people want to listen to that. Yeah. Well, that that's actually a good way to sort of talk about the opening image you give in the book, which is that I guess it's a an aphorism that desire is the heart of religion. What do you mean by that? Desire is the heart of religion. Yeah, I I I think that desire is the heart of religion in the sense that Human beings want to believe in something bigger, not just want to believe in something bigger than themselves, but almost have to. Have to, yeah. Because otherwise the isolation, you know, anime, that great phrase by Durkheim, anime takes over and, and chaos ensues. And so what do we live for? And, you know, in the 1960s, of course, the existentialist movement was powerful because you know, kind of people were coming to grips with nothingness, you know, and, and when you come to grips with nothingness, you, you sort of, as many of the existentialists would say, you become dizzy, dizzy with disillusionment, chaos, and non-meaning. And I think that's correct. And so for human beings to be, to thrive, they need something bigger than themselves. They need to live for something bigger than themselves. And they need to give themselves to something bigger than themselves. And so, you know, religion is just one way to do it. Um, and I'm not saying that uh, people should just do that willy-nilly. I make very cognizant choices about what I give my life for. But I give my life to something greater than myself. And I'm very particular about that. We go to a specific church that I think is doing good things. And I gave myself, I made a very specific choice about my first wife died and I, I married, remarried. I knew specifically the type of person I wanted to marry and give myself to as a way of disciplining my spiritual life, my emotional life, my, my life in general. And she was committed to family. And so, you know, 
I can announce this on your on your broad on your broadcast. She's pregnant with my fourth child, and your guys is second together. Yeah, and so she's a little girl. So I have four girls. So which is totally awesome. So again, congrats, man. That's awesome. I'm giving myself to my children because I want to believe in something beyond myself. And you know, girls are the greatest thing in the world. Um, and I love them with all my heart. So, you know, again, as a, as kind of a liberal, I suppose, you know, generally, but I know that it's just doesn't stop with me. I give myself to my community and my, to my God, to, to this desire. That's desire. This is my desire to be, to be given over to something greater than myself. Yeah. So desire is one way into that. I'm not sure. I don't think it's the only way to, to think about the, the fact that joy tends to come strongest when commitment is strongest. So I think about this with my son in a way that supersedes even with my own wife. So I've known my wife much longer. I have uh, very strong commitments to her. But in the moment to moment, those commitments are a lot more fungible because she is a autonomous adult who is capable of taking care of herself. So there, there are some things that need to be done at a certain time or by a certain time in order for me to express my love for her. But with my son, it is far more direct. It's quick. It's like I am done sleeping for the night, apparently, because he is up and I have to care for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, like So it's more like at the drop of a hat is the, the stuff that I do to care for my son because he's so fragile and he can't do any of this stuff for himself. So that I think is related to the deep and consistent joy I have in doing that stuff with him. So because of that, because I'm, I'm so moment to moment, of course, I'm not as committed as my wife is, who's taking care of him even more, you know, while I'm working or doing schoolwork or whatever. But even just, you know, what my interaction with him is like, it's so moment to moment, the commitment is so strong in terms of what it requires of me, that then I get more and more opportunities for delight with him, more and more opportunities for experiences that end up being the most meaningful experience of that day. Like sometimes I'll do some sort of half-assed version of the examine prayer before I go to bed and and think about like, what was the best part of my day? And it is always something with him, mm. basically without fail. And so there, that's another angle at this. So desire is one way in of like, what do we most desire? We, we, we want this collective effervescence. We want this meaning. We want to be survived by something after our own death. But then this other way is to say that greater meaning and joy come with greater commitment. And it's no secret in the literature and in people just know off the top of their head, these megachurches have more points of contact during the week with their members than liberal churches do. There are weekly, you know, midweek Bible studies and other kinds of groups. There's small groups that people are in. And the greater the commitment, you're just going to experience greater depth of meaning uh, and connection. Yeah. And I think that means that you, kind of what you're saying, you've, you've made a decision. You know, it's not pleasing in the moment to take care of your son. He wakes you up. But the obligation that there is I'm committed to you. Therefore, I will care for you. Therefore, I will sacrifice sleep or or comfort. But then in the long run, 
you get the joy of reciprocal care for you. You know, my little daughter will wake up and say in the morning and just look at you and you'll squeeze her little hand. She'll squeeze my little hand, my hand, and you'll just go, oh, wow. There's nothing quite like that. So, you know, that wouldn't come unless you made that initial step towards, you know, kind of confirming your commitment. Right. And I think, you know, that's just a part of, of what these megachurches are good at is that they, you know, lock people in through commitment to others and know that small group movements are the way for people to grow best in their faith, as they would talk about. Yeah, it's just that, yes, it's it's actually a fairly sophisticated social psychology at play that's just been learned through trial and error. And and as a part of, you know, what we could legitimately call a wisdom tradition. Wisdom comes over centuries when people field test. It's a laboratories of democracy, right? Uh, kind of a thing, but in religion. But I, I do want to, it's making me think of something. Could I, uh, could I just, could yes, I stop you just for a sec? What's fascinating about to me, and I just kind of wanted to follow on that one thought, is that this is a middle-class movement. Okay, It's not necessarily for elites. It's a middle-class movement or lower and, and middle-class movement in the sense that our culture doesn't have a culture. Our, our culture, our, our elite culture, is highly individualistic, right. made up of very well-educated elites who hang out with each other, usually have just one kid, you know, have kind of very fragile relationships because they're based on elite determinations. But I think that's another reason why elites look down on these churches. And, and, and us elites, we move more often too. So we're more mobile geographically, which also hurts the strength of our relationships as opposed to lower middle-class folks who, who tend to stay in the city where they were raised or area more often. Right. And so this is, I think, a middle class movement. And, you know, another reason why it's such a good movement in the sense that it really trains people on how to have responsible relationships. It's really there's huge training on marriage, how to have a healthy marriage, how to have a healthy relationship to your children. I just who else is going to do that except for the Boy Scouts? You know, well, I mean, or if you can other, afford, if you can afford therapy, right? Which is well, exactly uh, an elite subset of the population. I, I knowingly say, as I go into, go into that field myself, I, I understand most of my, all of my clients who pay me my full rate eventually will be members of the upper twenty percent or or something like that because everyone else can't afford it unless they happen to have really good insurance at their middle class job. So, yeah, for sure. Okay, so many interesting things about that. Yeah, go ahead. I want to pepper this, though, with a little bit of a recognition of some harm. So uh, back to what I was saying about greater power, more, more points of contact, more influence in people's lives. Now, if you have a really healthy church like that, then that's just fantastic. That is like it's coming up aces, nine out of ten. You've got this source for change, for meaning, for healing from trauma, for he from psychological healing, from terminal illness diagnoses, 
I mean, the, the literature is very strong on what this does for you. However, as someone who is now actively researching spiritual and religious abuse for my own dissertation, with that power comes also a very strong power to harm. And a, a lot of times people at the top of these structures. Now, this is not always mega churches. This is, in fact, I don't know the prevalence numbers here, but it might actually be more true for smaller churches that are really based around one guy or whatever. But mm. for instance, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill in Seattle, which was a mega church and was fronted by a narcissist. And because it was non-denominational, had really no, no baked in checks on his power, that became an atomic bomb in this area and and was catastrophic for thousands of people. And, and many of my own friends are still in therapy from their experiences there. And the kind of people whose accounts I'm reading in the spiritual abuse literature are, are just have, have their lives completely turned upside down because it is so powerful, right? So I just feel like that's worth bringing up and, and just being local, you know, us being local in Seattle. Yeah. We have the Mars Hill thing in our own backyard. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, yeah. And I, 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 I interviewed Mark Driscoll when he was still at Mars Hill. And, and I, I've done a lot of interviews with pastors. And he was the funniest, one of the smartest guys that I had ever met. And I actually kind of felt like uh, some kind of kindred spirit with him. And I think that was you know his manipulation too, but... People say uh, that about Trump, too, that when you're in the room with him, if he doesn't think of you as an enemy, he's the most charming person in the world. And this is what people with, and I'm not diagnosing either of them from afar, but let's just say they have narcissistic personality disorder, which is a real possibility. That is what those people are able to do, right? And so that's something to control for. I'm not, I'm not trying to <laughs> yeah, no, pre I preach think at you or anything. No, I, I agree. You know, having known many of the leaders who kind of are still, in a sense, in tr trying, trying to recover from their experience with Mark Driscoll, uh, I think it was really real. That is his exploitation, manipulation of other people. What's interesting is that evangelical churches both produce these great leaders and they don't they don't do accountability at the level it should be done. They don't rein them in, right. Exactly. So, you know, what's great about the, the mainline churches is that they do a lot of accountability. Yeah. And, and yet, what's interesting about this is they tend to lose their charismatic personalities types uh, because they're so controlling. And so they tend to produce people who are, are less charismatic and more controlled and tend to attract fewer people. So it is a, there's an interesting problem in that sense. How does a church attract charismatic types? How does a church keep them accountable without destroying their, their charisma? I think that would be an interesting, that would be an interesting conversation to have. You know, we have like uh, you know, like I said, we go to to Richard Dahlstrom's church, and Richard is an interesting guy. I don't know if he's I think he's charismatic in a certain way, but he also is really critical of himself. He surrounds himself with people that speak the truth to yeah. him, and I think he's got a good 
kind of level-headedness about him and a humility about him, even though he's been very successful in, in many ways. But he's a rare one, and, and those are rare individuals. Yeah, just to connect so, this for, for people who have listened to early episodes of this show, there was an episode on evolution with Adrian Wired who you know, Jim. Yeah, sure. And uh, he told a story of being at his church and the pastor was like, I think that we got, I got to rethink this evolution thing because I, I have my kind of priors and they're sort of standard evangelical assumptions. Maybe it's intelligent design. I, I, that sounds good to me. And he convened five people or so who were expert in science and were members of the church. Adrian was one of them. They presented to him they were all in agreement, like, it's not intelligent design. That's actually not science. We really did evolve. And here are various ways that Christians have thought about it. And Dahlstrom was the pastor in that story who said, okay, I, I trust you guys. He deferred to them. He then did a sermon series where he, whatever, you know, affirmed theistic evolution. And like, I heard that story and I was like, why does this story sound so rare to me? You know, but like, that's the kind of guy that he is. And and that is a rare example of a fairly powerful and quite successful sort of, you know, evangelical type leader. They don't tend to end up that way. And that is maybe its own conversation, as you're saying, of like, wh how do they end up these various ways? Sort of a separate area of yeah, research. It's sort of, you know, I go, go back to the William James phrase, radical empiricism. I find this kind of hits home for me is I'm radically empirical in the sense that, yeah, spirituality, God, whatever you want to call it, it seems has been really real to me, right? I've experienced things beyond myself that I denote as spirit, God, whatever. And I also know that, you know, like you were saying with Adrian, that, yeah, evolution is true. It, it, there's no, what's, what's the alternative argument, you know? And um, there is none. There is not a good alternative argument. So what? Interesting. Whew. Why not? God can work in many ways. God worked through evolution. Fascinating. We're still evolving. The human race in a certain sense may destroy itself or we may evolve, I mean, we're really at that point in our development that either we evolve or we uh, destroy the earth, our own environment. So it's a, it's a fascinating time to think about that. You know, as, as the human race is meeting its own destiny, can we evolve beyond the self-destructiveness of, of our dark side? And will such action require collective effervescence? Hmm. Seems and like a, a leader and a leader who has the genius to both be collectively effervescent, but also to say, "Hey, let us also think together." Think I together. Mean, so now you're now you're really getting to like this is the issue uh, in some sense is like why can't we have some beautiful marriage of the sort of mega church effective model, right? So they they have found through whatever, stumbling upon it, trial and error through some individual geniuses along the way, a super effective model of religious engagement. And what a lot of people like myself would say, unfortunately, the people who have discovered that have quite a few toxic theological beliefs that come along with it. 
I'm always interested in how many of those, which of those are actually required to do it right to like be so effective and which are not. And I want to throw out two examples to you to kind of stir the pot a bit. Yeah. Uh, the first is Rob Bell, who I know you also interviewed because you wrote a book on him, an, a scholarly book about him uh, maybe a decade ago. Before he moved to L.A., when he was at Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, not to be confused with Mars Hill in Seattle, I listened to a sermon one day on my – I downloaded it to my iPod when I was on in a touring rock band and didn't have a local church. And I wept in the RV in my bunk – as I listened to him say that they had put up an entire wall of like children to be adopted from, you know, save the children or world vision or something the previous Sunday. And that ev- they said, we want that wall clear by next week. And it was clear. Now that church was to, to my understanding, gay affirming. It was sort of progressive, at least compared to other f- evangelical churches of the time 15 years ago or something like that. So that that's that kind of thing. And they had a, a cool worship band and they, you know, I went once or twice. I was, I stayed in Michigan for a couple months at one point in Mar- in Grand Rapids and went. Another example would be Greg Boyd at Woodland Park or Woodland Hills Church. And I don't think he's gay affirming, but they pushed back really hard on Americanism and militarism. So a lot of the things that are really tied up with uh, American evangelical megachurch culture, and they have a very successful massive church. Both those guys are pretty charismatic. I don't know how much of it is that. I just I want to throw those two examples out. You probably know more about each of those churches than I do. What do you think is going on? Are those ways forward models of an integration? Are they outliers that it would be hard to be repeated without a 10 in a generation charismatic leader? What do you think? Yeah, Rob Bell was, you know, a disappointment for me in the, in the sense that I think he was kind of pulling it off at Mars Hill. He was pulling off the charisma of a revolutionary type of Christianity where we not only should speak and, and feel the good news, but we should be radical disciples of a, of a God who is against militarism and kind of radically committed to raising those who are poor and in all those things. And I mean, I agree with you. I still look back and I remember listening to his sermons, even on the treadmill, I would sometimes cry as I was working out going, wow, you really have found the gospel in this text, both in terms of its freedom to, to set you free, but to also your obligation to the other. So when he left, now he's kind of producing everything spiritual. It feels very, you know, kind of hither and yon. You know, where's your commitment to a community? What are you doing for the sake of the least, the last lost? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know where he is. And I don't really listen to his stuff. But he would probably say, well, you just don't listen to me. I'm, I'm doing radical stuff on my podcast. I don't know. Just feels a little bit of a downer. That's hard. I mean, he there's so many confounding factors in there, right? There's who knows what he felt like actually called to. The podcast probably has a much bigger reach than his church did. 
But yeah, it's, you, you know, I, I am somewhat aware. I haven't read like his last couple books or anything, but it's definitely, you know, it's not, it's definitely not like a super socially focused, you know, set of teachings, right? Like he's not on the front line, although he was pretty, pretty, pretty vocal about um, gay inclusion. I would say that. So maybe that's the way that he would describe his sort of advocacy work is, is with that community. I don't know. That's interesting. Well, I just remember that he told me about this and I, I've read his interviews on it. You know, at one point he, he moved his family into the inner city of Grand Rapids, which, you know, we may, we may say, well, that's not a very tough area. It is a tough area. Grand Rapids has a lot of deep poverty. Mm. And I, I don't know, there was a part of me, I, I don't think it worked for him. Mm. It kind of, it almost defeated him in a certain way. And so he, he, he got out of it, but man, when he was doing that, I thought, wow, this is kind of liberation theology in an evangelical mode. And so, you know, that was really powerful for me. So, you know, Greg Boyd, I think is a great, is, is fascinating in the sense that he's not taken with, you know, militarism. He doesn't give himself over to nationalism. He's kind of a Canadian version of a of a good evangelical and i think that's a he's a powerful witness to it he's not as fluid in his preaching he's not as charismatic as as bell is but i think he's socially dedicated and politically dedicated in ways that that bell is not yeah i admired greg boyd a lot one thing i'd actually i'd love to pick your brain about with rob bell if we can do a little five minute tangent uh, yeah. You brought up William James earlier, the great American uh, philosopher and psychologist. And in his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, his sort of main work, which I would highly recommend, by the way, to anybody, it's 110 years old and people are still quoting it every day. One of the most lasting uh, pieces of work in that field. He makes one really big distinction between type of religious leaders and teachings. And it's uh, it's six soul and uh, what is the what's the other one again? I'm blanking on the term. A sick soul and a healthy. I'm not sure. Yeah, healthy, no. healthy mind or healthy something healthy like minded, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, like healthy that. minded. I think that's what it is. So sick soul is like Luther, right? And James says 70, 80 percent of religious leaders and religious teachings come from the sick soul kind mm. of camp. It's like there is a real rot here. There is where we are starting from. This is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. We start with the fact that I don't do what I want to do. Paul, Francis Spufford in Unapologetic says he starts with the the human capacity to f- shit up, he calls it. That's his you know original sin. But also liberation theology would be sick soul. It's like we are oppressed. There mm. is oppression in the world. That's where we start. Now, does the gospel have something to say to this, for instance, in a Christian context? And he was, of course, talking about more than just Christian context. And then there's healthy minded, which is like a little bit more like I, I feel like Deepak Chopra, maybe kind of more of an Oprah thing of like Joel Osteen would be healthy minded. It's like God wants what's good for you. It, let's focus on the positive. And ever since I read that five years ago, I don't know when I read William James, I immediately thought Rob Bell of healthy minded. I was like, oh, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. He's the healthy minded guy where he just is constitutionally, I bet, personality-wise, just more comfortable 
bringing out inspiration and focusing on the good. And the reason that he will never, that for me personally, he will never hold the place that a Kierkegaard holds, Mm. for instance, is that he doesn't start with sick soul. So I am just at the possibility of making this too complicated. I want to throw one more thread in here for Mm. you, Jim, as I train to become a psychologist, I am really convinced by the fundamental claim of Carl Rogers, the humanist psychologist, that people do want to be good. We want to flourish. We want to, you don't need to browbeat people with their sin and the way, you know, Christ is the way forward and you're a worm otherwise. I reject that stuff. But I think I'm still in the sick soul camp of like, but people are very disordered. There are all kinds of things getting in the way of that a desire to flourish, of that forward momentum toward the good, toward the true, toward the beautiful, toward God. And so Boyd, I think, would be sick soul insofar as he takes evil very seriously and he's always writing about evil and violence. And, you know, most Christian thinkers are sick soul types in the James typo- typology and Bell is not. He's healthy minded type. OK, that was a lot. I've obviously been wanting to talk about this on air for a long time. Feel free to respond to whatever. Well, yeah. Um, wow. Well, you know, it's that funny. wow, I mean, by the way, sounds like a good wow, but it's not. It's the wow of an interviewer who asked way too many things and brought way yeah, too many probably. things in between. Yeah. I, I, Zorn Kierkegaard was so powerful to me in college, in part because I was so confused as to who I was and so disrupted by a family that was an unhealthy family. And so depending on the context of where you were born and the family that you're born into, you know, for me, I was born into a relatively unhealthy family life. And so the only persons I read, Simone Weil, you know, these were people who were deeply disturbed at a, at a, at a deep level. Yeah. And then they said, but there's the core of, of trying to sort of crawl out of this well of unhealth. And how do you do that? You don't have to stay in the, your sick soulness. And, right. and there was a part of me that never really wanted to stay a sick soul, even though I went to a Josh McDowell uh, revival when I was at the University of Washington. And I went, I don't know, just out of curiosity. Josh McDowell is the evidence that demands a verdict guy, big apologist, rationalist, Christian speaker and thinker, just in case people don't know. Yeah. And in the middle of it, I just, I was, you know, a young college student. I just walked out because I thought, no, this isn't it. It's too, you know, just happy clappy. And of course, for me, it wasn't good because, you know, I had to, you know, work my salvation out through this kind of six souls type. Yeah. So I went home and I read Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard. And I, I saw this is it. Yeah, that, that was, you know, so really it depends on kind of the health of your uh, family life to some extent. So I think this is, you know, relative to, you know, what kind of soil were you born into? Totally, uh, totally. And, uh, you know, and I, I've come to, you know, so I don't really read Six Oldness so much anymore. I don't, in a sense, I don't feel like I need to. 
I do do therapy, but but I understand the need for it. And I understand, you know, kind of we are being saved over and over again at a certain level that we develop some contradiction and that contradiction brings us to this moment of, ah, how do I solve it? And then to me, grace is that is the overcoming of the contradiction. And then you move through to a next level and you go, ha, then you relax and then life builds up another contradiction and you go through that again. So that's, I guess I'm describing my own path towards salvation is, you know, kind of a continuing series of contradictions that you have to overcome. I don't know what else it, I'm not sure if that resonates with people or not, but that's kind of the way my life is at least. I think that's beautiful. So let's say that we were trying to devise a plan for a mega church that was avoiding some of these issues. So we're trying to maximize, this is our thought experiment of maximizing the value of the mega church experience, but doing it more like, you know, Rob Bell's old Mars Hill church or, or whatever, Woodland Hills. From your research, what are some of the things that we would want to keep in, right? So what's some of the stuff that worked the best as far as you know? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. This, the difference I would say is that we'd be upfront. We'd be upfront. You know, we're going to wow you with coffee, people who care, people who are happy. But we're going to say, you know, we want this place to be a happy place. And we're doing it intentionally. And we're going to tell you why we're doing it. Because we want to attract you to a place that's healthy, happy, and allows you to say, ah, hey, it's great to be here. And we're going to be totally upfront. And it's not, it's not going to be hidden. This isn't a hidden scheme. So you're actually, you're actually answering the opposite side of the coin question, which is what would we do differently? (laughs) So, and, and that actually, this is, I think this gets at something that I'm really interested in that my thinking is evolving on a couple years ago when I first learned about the church clarity movement, which is like, Hey, these churches need to be upfront. Can gay people be on the worship team or not? Because there's all these stories of people going to churches Six months, one year, two years, three years, then volunteering to serve, never having known that they were going to be ineligible. And then, oh, actually, we don't agree with your lifestyle. You can't serve here. And the tremendous damage that that does. And two years ago, I thought, you know, I get that complaint, but churches need to change slowly if they are going to not just fracture and polarize even more. So I'm maybe willing to take some of that in the short term, in the hopes that these churches will have long-term change of opinion in a sustainable way. And I think there's still something to that. But the more that I get into this spiritual abuse literature and research, I'm just like, oh, yeah. this is so damaging. Like, I don't know. I I think maybe we need to take that short-term hit and and be more – I'm, I'm moving more towards the church clarity side, which is very similar to what you're saying of like – we would be upfront. We would sort of show our cards and say, yeah. this is what we, we want a healthy and fun environment because that is good for you. And it relates to your flourishing kind of a thing. Well, and also it attracts people. I mean, you know, in, in terms of the, those issues, you know, whether you're gay or not, it doesn't matter to me. I just want healthy flourishing relationships 
that are not just for yourself, but for others, so that we just don't focus on ourselves. We focus on our community. We focus on service to others. Yeah, We're not here just for ourselves, but we are here for ourselves. And, you know, you have to have good news into your own self before you can be a good news to others, etc. I would just be upfront. This really works. I want to be in a happy place. I don't want to go to church where it's sad, <laughs> where I want to, I want a church where everybody is completely accepted, but I want a church also that is morally, uh, how would I put it? That seeks to encourage you to be more than you are. That is in terms of, you know, gives, give, giving more of yourself away in your intimate relationships, in your social relationships, in your political relationships, in your world relationships. Um, why not have a mega church that is fully alive to peace and justice and goodness for the whole world? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, so two ways to go with this. One is I will re- I could re-ask my question, which is, okay, but tell me the stuff that works about them. The other is to sort of consider why this hasn't happened, like, or very often. Is there stuff baked in to the megachurch cake that makes that unlikely that the reason that we haven't seen this very much, either one, you go where you want to go, but I'm going to ask you both. That's a great question. Charismatic leaders are relatively rare. Mm -hmm. Rob Bell was burned out. Um, The last, I think his last sermon I was there for, I went up to him afterwards and it was great sermon. He's great preacher. I went up to him afterwards and I looked at him and there's a picture of us together that I won't show you. But he looked utterly, he looked just fried, okay? He was fried. And I could, it was, it's just so obvious. It's hard to pull off. It's really hard to pull off. It's almost too much work. I mean, in a certain sense, Jesus couldn't pull it off, (laughs) you know? Okay, okay. so let me, let me ask you this then. Because I wonder if this, um, this is riffing in the moment, but maybe... One of the complaints about evangelical megachurch pastors is that they're fucking cookie cutter and they they do have a certain kind of charisma, but it's often a kind of a car salesman charisma. It's not it's not that kind of deep humanity that Richard Dahlstrom has, for instance, your pastor. It's like a real estate agent, a bad, you know, I don't want to pick on real estate agents, but you know, I'm talking about like when they're selling you on the house and you're looking at it and you're doing the, you're visiting the house or whatever. And maybe that is in a sense by design because you can't actually like, it's, it's such a machine. It needs a player to slot in at the running back position, but there are other running backs ready to go to slot into that system because it, it can churn you up and you actually need to kind of be playing a role in order to do it. This is now we're getting into kind of the dark, the, you know, the back, the, the back office uh, aspect well, of this, know, right? Again, be upfront. I am here, you know, let's, let's just talking as Richard. Richard is really clear that he'd rather live in the forest. I mean, literally, literally. And he doesn't really want to be around a bunch of people very much. Hmm. And so I think in the end, he just said that to his team. I can't do it. If you want me to preach, you know, three three out of four Sundays or two out of four Sundays, I'll do that. 
but to survive, I need to be away. And you can't depend on me for everything. Hmm. And so he builds up a huge staff that does all the nuts and bolts work. And so that's very rare. I don't know too many people like him. It's very rare for a church just to, just to say, oh, yeah, you can just be here on Sunday um, and just be yourself and we'll love you and we won't need you otherwise. <laughs> it's, just, it's really rare. Right. Yeah. You know, and um, so in that sense, the church has to grow up, has to realize that human beings are just human. And even Jesus, I love those stories where he's with a crowd. And then he just disappears. Pieces out. Yep. Oh, man. He just goes, there's, you know, his differentiation of character was so profound where he just is with somebody. He heals. Everybody gathers around him. And he just says, see ya. And he was clearly exhausted and he just left. He didn't say, hey, you guys, I know you need me, uh, but I need to go peace out. No, he just, nope. Bye. You know, I love that. I love that kind of differentiated individuality where I don't care. Bye. <laughs> That's yeah. all. It's so, just rare. It's just so rare, man. It is. I mean, you, what you described there is a, a quite healthy individual who has the means to hire a bunch of other quite healthy individuals as staff. And I can just hear, you know, I can hear the many pastors and other people in ministry who listen to the show going, Sounds great, Dan. <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to be a healthier version of myself with like, you know, access to hundreds of other healthy adults that would want to work for me, you know, and and so sure, like obviously that's an ideal situation. Um, but I mean, but I'm gonna, it's, you know, just so I want to yeah. challenge that it's that is it talking like a person who's not differentiated. What do you mean? Uh, in the sense that you're making excuses um, for that person. You know, I'm just kind of pushing back just for fun. Yeah. I know I would never, you know, I've, I've been a pastor. It's a terrible job. It's a terrible <laughs> job. And I, it's a terrible I love job. the forthrightness. So we yeah. should, we should, we should talk about it that way hmm. and just say very few people can do this. Well, very few, few people have a strong enough differentiated personality to pull off a healthy lifestyle. What do you mean by differentiated? Differentiated is I'm no longer addicted to the, to the approval of unhealthy people. Yeah. <clears throat> right. That's kind of what I was, I was using the word mature kind of. To right. I'm not, I'm not that, addicted yeah. to your unhealthy need for me. Um, but and, most people who are drawn to being figureheads like myself, for instance, yes. uh, we have a, a latent narcissism that has to get worked through. Now I'm grateful that I don't have so much that I have a personality disorder, but in a slightly different world, I could, you know, and, and even so the narcissism of like, I was, I was just, even just last night going to bed, I was thinking about how like, oh, you know what? I bet a lot fewer people give a shit what I think than I think do. Like I'm still having those thoughts at 37. So for people like me, to get to that point of health is a process and takes time and usually takes therapy and takes negative experiences and whatever, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, if you're not in therapy, it's a mistake almost because so many people are maybe, I don't know if they're depending on you, but you know, 
to some extent, people are depending on me. So I feel like I have to be healthy. But in order to be healthy, I really have to be working on kind of the shadow side of myself. and Which, again, takes money. Totally takes money. But it's really critical for the health of my family, my community, and myself. Um, So, you know, I'm always always working at it. I'm going to ask that question uh, again that I asked earlier. So in terms of what's going on nuts and bolts in these megachurch services – what are the things that are working so well? And I'm specifically interested in finding things that don't have a kind of like an in-group, out-group component or, you know, an unhealthy or I think false theological component. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when, when we put this together, we tried to figure that out. I mean, what are, this, what are the six desires? You know, the desire, of course, we've talked about this belonging and acceptance. People want that. They want it, the, the immediate buzz of, ah, this is a place that, that I feel loved. And, you know, one of the examples was I'm walking into the parking lot with my uh, associate and, um, you know, two young people come out with hot coffee and an umbrella because it's raining and we want coffee. Um, and so, you know, second, I talk about hacking the happy and that is music or a feel good atmosphere within the church all my needs are met before I even ask. Awesome. Music that's appealing, uh, a feeling of anticipation. There's something coming. Awesome. And uh, then, you know, we talk about the reliable leader. And again, you know, this is a dependent relationship we're talking about. It's going to have to be somebody who is charismatic in a certain sense. And, and charisma can come in many ways. But it's always, you know, this is what we thought. It's always a charismatic leader is somebody who knows the question, the deeper question that's being asked inside and then begins to answer that question. And with that answer comes ah, deliverance, a sense of, I made it through. And then we have the altar call. I mean, you don't have to have an altar call, but there has to be a sense of release, release. And and then we say, but the release has to go for something. And that is, you know, purpose and service. But then you need to, you need to be refreshed. And so you remember by going into small groups, a community of, mm-hmm. of service and um, a community of people. And so my wife and I, you know, we think about people. Who do we want to be around as friends, right? Who will help us remember who we are? Who will help us remember how we can be good parents? Who will help us remember ourselves? So, you know, all those six desires, I think, are just kind of a fundamental rhythm to what it means to be human and to recall oh, this is how I put myself together again. And I can, ah, yeah, I can have hope and I can be have peace that passes understanding. And I can know who I am because people know who I am, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. That's I interesting. Mean, A lot of that yeah. stuff does not have particular theological, you know, viewpoints attached to it. Well, you could talk about, you know, 
the body of Christ. As you come into the body of Christ, you are accepted. You feel the joy of membership, the reliability of Jesus in you, the sense of deliverance from sin, the purpose given it for a life that's well lived. And that right. this is you are a member of a wider body, which is the body of Christ, you know, in the world. So wherever you got wherever you are, you're always in a community. I yeah. guess I, I meant uh, in particular sort of denominational peculiarities. Uh, are, you know, you don't have to be penal substitutionary atonement to have to follow that model. No. And I guess Rob Belzel Church is an example of that, right? So it is possible to do this without the sort of pseudo-Baptist theology that most of these churches end up having, right? But why do you think – I mean this is like the – this is a big question. Why are so many of them in that kind of Baptist sort of tradition? Is it – and I'll, I'll throw out one possible answer that comes from my own research around the Jesus movement and the popularity of the End Times books. Something that I think I uncovered is that basically through one of my interviewees, his idea, is that the people who did – the, all the evangelizing were the fundamentalists because they were internally motivated to evangelize in a way that the mainliners weren't. Uh, yeah. Is it something like that? The people who are motivated to start these really successful churches are motivated by their theology and the, you know, the liberal Methodists and Lutherans and stuff, just they're motivated to do different things. And so they're not starting these big churches. Yeah. I don't have a good answer to that question. I've thought about it for a long time, and liberal Protestants fail so often to be able to open new churches or to create churches that are you know reproducing. Yeah, that is that are growing. That grow. Either you're growing or you're not, and um, many of these churches are not growing, and so it's just you walk in and you you know you you I'm sure you felt this. You feel like you're at a funeral. And the funeral just goes on and on and on. See, I now I I've, I've become kind of episcopal basically okay. where I I actually kind of fell in love with Catholic mass and episcopal version is like, you know, the the Catholic light version, it's one yeah. hour. Ideally, it uses like very beautiful many hundreds year old classical music that has yeah. not that in a certain aesthetic way has not been topped. A lot of that is personal aesthetic preference. I realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm grateful that my wife and I t- happen to agree on that. So we we like the high church kind of a thing, but I also recognize its limited appeal. It also has a class basis to it. Totally. We are full on coastal elites. I'm in graduate school. She's a college grad. She, you know, she's like basically taking care of our son these days with her college degree and, you know, could have any number of jobs, like totally, I get it. And so that's why, one of the reasons I'm more interested in this. And, I, and I'm and i tempted to be like, huh, if there was a church like this, like, would I be willing to use my musical skills towards something like this if I really believed in it? Can I get over my cultural snobbery here? You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a little fired up. Uh, you know, I've been to your church. I, I, it's not quite for me. So that's off the table, I think. You know, I don't know. I mean, let's put it this way. There's no church that's perfect. 
Right. I mean, the, the cheesy music that they play at my church, I always, I kind of go. I'm not you made a, there, you made a, you made a meh, face. People yeah, no, that. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's often, and it feels like the same song. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes I think, I think it was, isn't this the same song? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, you know, I, I kind of miss, I actually miss my Presbyterian hymn book. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but the church is not the answer. I don't know. Maybe that's heretical. A particular church is certainly not the answer ever, right? I mean, yeah. So, in terms of in that sense, I don't think that should be controversial at all. I mean, I guess so. We're almost done here, but maybe just say one more thing about so. So you don't the music, you know, is not always your cup of tea or whatever. So, but what are you there for? Like, maybe phrase it in some of the ways of the stuff you've been talking about. Like, what? Well, why do you keep going back? I, you know, I I am caught by the gospel as this powerful force for good in the world, for justice, for reconciliation, for peace at a deepest, at the deepest level that calls me to serve the least, the last and the lost that reminds me I'm not just here for myself, but for this little baby who I love and for everyone's little babies and for the earth and for the world. You know, so yeah, so I mean, it, in that sense, uh, the church is not the answer, but it reminds, it remembers me, it remembers me to go out into the world and, and be the good news. So yeah, it's never perfect. It's not the answer, but what is, you know? We haven't been doing uh, like online Zoom church, but I just started just this last Sunday when I was up early with Soren putting on like a, a Catholic mass that I happened to quickly find on YouTube. But, but even just like, especially the prayers of the people praying for the poor and the sick, praying mm-hmm. for our leaders, centering me as a Christ following person in a broader context with language that has worked for hundreds of years to help people sort of center and focus. Mm-hmm. I was just like, shit, I missed that, man. So I'm going to probably start looking for, some um, services. I mean, just in the meantime, just to have on on Sunday morning when I'm just playing with him and holding him and stuff and Jeffrey's still sleeping or, you know, whatever, getting some extra sleep. I was surprised. It's remembering in the sense that you are for yourself, but you're also for, for others, for the world, for the duplex, for the, you're, you're, you're not just here for yourself. And that Christ is with you and Christ is for you and that Christ calls you to be for the world. And so I think what is missed when you don't go to church or go to some sort of religious or or social justice oriented community is that you're not just here for yourself. You're here for your family, but for your community, for the earth you know, for, for the, the cosmos, you know, we're, we're here for, to transcend ourselves at some level, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, that's a beautiful moral duty that we all, each of us has. And, and so for me, that's, that's why I continue to do it. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to these mega churches in the sort of wake of Trump. 
we're recording this before the election. I am currently assuming that he will lose for the sake of this comment. And it it will be interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if the model is able to sort of adapt and not go down with the ship. I guess we will see. Well, I think it's an important test of the church is that once a church, any church, any religious community gets sort of addicted to a leader, it always seems to me a, a mistake. And politics should be held at hand's length. And we should be able to be critical of it and critical of ourselves. But that, of course, means that we're people who are willing to listen to honest feedback. And, you know, I think Christ is the ultimate example of that in the sense that Caesar is never enough. And, you know, he clearly set himself against Caesar. And uh, that's the way we should be. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. What a fantastic and interesting conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I've got a link to Jim's episode of Depolarize, my former podcast about, in that case, it was about Trump and evangelicals. It was a really interesting conversation we had then a couple years back. Um, there's another scholar as well on that episode. And man, it's <laughs> if there was a moment uh, in the last few years when that episode felt uh, t- good timing, prescient, whatever you want to say, it is this moment as evangelicals, many, many of them begin to double down, triple down on Trump's election fraud, uh, bogus claims. So check that out if you'd like to hear some more of Jim and I. Uh, and I, the usual here is also that there's a Patreon. There is a Patreon campaign if you'd like to support this show financially. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Patrons get at least two exclusive episodes per month and access to the patron-only Facebook group. I would recommend it. It's an incredible community. Um, I thought about making that community free on Facebook. I did that with Depolarize, and it just was not that great of an experience. There was a handful, of course, of awesome people, but free groups devolve. They just tend to devolve. If there's a little bit of buy-in, the groups become so much more robust, and people support each other. They really listen. They take the time to understand each other. I see it time and again in that group, and I'm always very encouraged by that. And if $5 a month is steep for you right now, and and, uh, I don't blame you, we are in crazy economic times right now, uh, you can email me about, there's a sliding scale. So you have permission podcast at gmail.com. And uh, this, this was like a kind of just an extra episode this week because I realize I'm way ahead on conversations. And I will probably do this again once or twice in January um, just because I've got so many of these excellent conversations banked up and I, I don't want to sit on them forever. I've got, I've got plenty of a buffer for my own sort of headspace and not getting stressed about the workload. So I figure let's just get them out there. Uh, so hopefully you enjoyed that two episodes this week and, and we'll enjoy it uh, next month and maybe into February as well as I get to a, a more regular buffer, which for me is like six to seven conversations ahead of release schedule. That's uh, that's where I like to be. OK, have a good holidays with your uh, with or on Zoom with however you're doing it with your megachurch attending family. See you guys. Uh, see you Monday. Monday.